changed for most of us 20 years ago. So much has happened in between, uh, never to be the same. Certainly travel-wise and, and otherwise, there were lots of reflections on that online, on television, etc. So it's a great reminder that uh, ultimately God's in control of life. We aren't. Even if we say we have the prophetic scriptures, thinking of Bill's Sunday school lesson this morning, and we do have the prophetic scriptures, but God doesn't alert us ahead of time to all the things that come upon us in the world. That's a great reminder. He's in control, we're not. And you know, even with the COVID and all the, the ways the world has been turned upside down again, different way, but again, the world shifting almost under our feet, just a great reminder that God is in control. Uh, this has nothing to do with the message, by the way. My, my introduction seemed to grow in length. I did want to say, because I'll probably forget to later, uh, we'll be talking about some prophecy a little bit this morning out of our text, but one of the things I think is uh, temptation for Christians, and, and maybe even especially for Christians who have the prophetic scripture and have some sense of what God has said is coming yet upon the world, there's a temptation to fearfulness and that's absolutely the opposite of what we should have i was reading first peter this week in chapter three a lot of people have memorized the verse that says be ready to give an apology a, a defense for the hope that you have but that verse is at the end of a section that says if you suffer for doing the right thing don't be afraid and refuse worry and anxiety so for us, no matter what's going on in the moment, there may be real trials, real suffering, real challenges to negotiate, but as those who belong to Christ, we are called to be fearless, to reject worry, fear, and anxiety as unworthy of those who know Christ, know who they have believed in and where they're going. So with that, let me pray, and we'll actually get into the, into the Word. Lord, we are so thankful that you've left us the, the truth of your Word and the presence of your spirit that makes real to us uh, the person and work of Jesus and the truth that you mean us to take in, to imbibe, to drink. Thinking of Jesus' words in John 6, that we would eat his flesh and drink his blood, that he would become vitally a part of us. We ask that more of that would occur this morning as we drink in and satisfy ourselves in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, before he suffered on the cross, he went to the temple, and you remember Palm Sunday's the celebration of that welcome, the crowds welcoming him in. And in that trip to the temple, you may remember that he upturned the money changers' tables, he kicked out those selling doves, animals for sacrifice. And of course, the issue there wasn't that they didn't need money changers or that they didn't need merchants who would sell animals for the sacrifices that everyone would go to the temple to perform. But it was rather that all that was taking place in the courts of the temple itself. And Jesus said that the, the practice of what was going on had effectively made God's temple, Jesus' uh, father's household, like a merchant place, like a merchant stall. And this was putting off Gentile believers who basically were coming, they were being ripped off. He said, my, my father's house is meant to be a place of prayer for all people, quoting Isaiah. Gentiles were coming and were being offended by the way they were treated by Jews. So he turns over the tables, he upsets everything going on, and the priests and the elders that oversaw, that ran the temple, they come up to him and they ask him a question. And they say, by what authority 
are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to come in and turn over these tables? Who gave you the authority to tell us what we should and shouldn't be doing? And guys, that's a, it's actually a good question, isn't it? Who gave you authority? Why should we believe you? Why should we listen to you? Now, at this point in Jesus' life on earth, it's a disingenuous question. It's a good question on its own. It's a disingenuous question when they ask it because this is at the end of three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. So he's performed the signs and the miracles. He's validated the messianic predictions out of Isaiah. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the, the poor would have good news preached to them. He's done all this and they've still said, we're not sure who you are. It was illegitimate in their mouth at the time, but it is generally a good question to say to someone who claims to speak for God, why should we listen to you? By what authority do you speak and why should we give you credibility? This is something that came up for Paul. If you read 2 Corinthians, you'll see that a major recurring theme in that letter is Paul's defense of himself. If you remember, and it's kind of strange, oftentimes the people we respect or listen to the least are the ones that have earned the most right to be heard. That was certainly the case with Paul. So you remember that there's a church in Corinth because he preached the gospel there. But the years have gone by and taller, better looking, better sounding people have come in and they've said we're the real deal and Paul's not. And Paul calls them super apostles or pseudo apostles. Paul says they're not sent by God. They don't speak with God's authority. They're actually they look like angels, but they're actually inspired by Satan himself. And, but for the Corinthians, they say, well, they, they look the part, they sound the part, Paul, in ways you don't. And so Paul spends a good part of that letter convincing them that his testimony has the authority of heaven against those guys. They don't. Have you ever had the experience, and in my mind when I think of this, it's always a, a parent and a child, have you had the experience, maybe if you are a parent and you've talked to junior, I'm thinking primarily adolescents and teenagers, uh, they're telling you how things are, the parent. You know, the junior's telling the parent how things are. And, and the parent, mom or dad, they're looking at junior and they're trying to explain, well, no, that's not quite the way things are. And junior's looking up with incredulity, like, do you have any idea what you're talking about? You know, and so mom or dad, they might say something like this. Uh, I was a teenager once. You know, they're like, what? You know, you were my age. I was a teenager once. I went through this. I've experienced this. You should listen to me. But they're trying to sell their own credibility so that Junior has the benefit of their wisdom, right? Ultimately, it's for the benefit of those who are hearing. And Peter has the same problem. The Apostle Peter has the same problem right near the end of his life. And this is the situation for him. Peter knows because the Spirit has let him know that the believers he's writing to in modern-day Turkey, that they are going to be subject to men who will come along after Peter, and they're going to say, we speak for God, and they don't. And they're going to say to these people, Peter is instructed, there is no return of Jesus to the earth, and he's certainly not coming back and judging sin. And we'll get into this in chapters 2 and 3. But he knows what messages they're going to hear. It's a little bit like Paul in Acts 20 when he's speaking to the elders from the church at Ephesus and he says, from among your own, your own group, your own number, vicious wolves will arise to take people after themselves. 
Peter's looking and he sees the same thing that's going to occur in the lives of those believers in modern-day Turkey. And so he's telling them ahead of time, these guys are going to come. And when they do, you've got to remember what I said. And so Peter is going to give an apologia for his own testimony, his own witness. And then he's also going to do the same thing for the legitimacy of the Old Testament Scripture. So Peter is going to affirm, you'll see, when he says the prophets, we're thinking Old Testament. And when he says apostles, we're thinking New Testament. And this is the question, when we go through this, and we'll wind up here at the end of the message, as we're thinking about this, just ask yourself now, today, who has credibility in your mind? Who are you listening to? Who, whose, whose speech, whose outlook are you giving validity to? And on what basis? So you know we are awash in communication today. And there's been no time in history in which there are more competing voices for your mind and for your thoughts and for mine. So whose testimony do we give credence to? One, and how much credence does the biblical record, does the witness of the apostles and the prophets affect the way we're looking at life? Or it doesn't. And so we're susceptible to misleading people who claim to speak for God but don't. So that's where we're going. We're going to be in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Before we get there, though, we're going to start in Mark's gospel. This is a long way around the block, I grant you, starting in Mark to get to 2 Peter. But you'll see, in 2 Peter, Peter is going to be looking back. Remember, we know he's already near the end of his life. He said, hey, my time on earth is short, and so this is my letter, last letter to you. I'm reminding you of some things. But here, he's going to look back in his own life to an event that occurred that's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We're going to choose Mark, so that when we read 2 Peter 1, we're remembering the episode that he's referring to. So we're seeing what he related as what he had seen, what he was a witness to. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark. We'll grab the last verse out of Mark 8. And that takes us into Mark 9, I think, through, yeah, verse 8. So starting, starting there, Mark 8, 38, Jesus says, There, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is, is prepping them. He's talking about when he comes again, not as the Philippians 2, Isaiah 52 and 53 servant, but when Jesus comes in a glorious appearance in the future, that's what he's cueing them to. And then he goes into chapter 9. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. They see some, some element of God's future glorious kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So this was Peter's experience. Peter, James, and John, this is what they saw. Jesus says, some of you will see the kingdom in power. And then Peter, James, and John, on that mountaintop, they see the kingdom in power in the glorious appearing of Jesus, of the king of the kingdom. They see him and they get this glimpse, if you will, of what the future kingdom will look like because they've seen the king in his glory, glory and power. That's, that's Mark 8 and 9. That's what Peter saw. So now turn towards the back of your Bible, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter's going to pick up this theme and his memory of what had occurred. He says now he's turned from reminding them of Christ-like virtues and his own reminding them before he puts off his earthly coil to move on. He turns now and he says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When he says the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, it's not Jesus' birth, it's not the incarnation, it's the Mount of Transfiguration, he makes clear. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That's Peter's testimony. Now he shifts gears in verse 19 to talk about the Old Testament scriptures. He says, We have the prophetic word more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter here reminds fellow believers why his testimony is valid and should be believed and followed. And if you go back to the opening of the book, first couple of lines, you remember Peter first said, I'm an apostle. He said, I'm, I'm Christ's slave on one hand, his humility. But on the other hand, he said, but I am an apostle of Jesus. And so he says, I'm speaking with Jesus' authority. Jesus chose me to be his mouthpiece, his spokesman. Remember, Peter's the key apostle of all the apostles. So he started by saying, listen to me, because I'm Jesus' spokesman appointed by him. I'm an apostle. But now he reminds them of two more important reasons to continue to hold to the messages he'd communicated, remember, against the coming errors. Peter was an eyewitness of God the Father's affirmation of Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures, like Peter's eyewitness testimony, were sure and were to be believed. So Pete says, I'm an eyewitness, and I've told you about that. We'll look at that. And then he says, and the Old Testament scriptures are valid and should be believed. So if you look real briefly just at chapters, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 in 2 Peter, turn the page if you need to. The reason Peter is bringing this up is because of who and what's coming. He says there, scoffers will come in the last days 
with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, so here's the message that's coming up that they need to be prepared for. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? We'll, we'll look at the text fully later, but that's what's coming up. There's going to be this scoffing, this incredulity. These folks are going to say, this thing is a joke. It's a myth. You guys have made something up about Jesus' return. The Greek term there used in chapter 3 for coming is parousia. It means coming, presence, arrival, advent. That term is used 24 times in the New Testament, 16 of which refer to Jesus' return to the earth. And that's the same word that Peter used in our verse 16 when he says, We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was in reference to Jesus' appearance in glory on the mountain of transfiguration. So Peter's connecting these two thoughts. What happened on the mount of transfiguration prefigures or is a prelude to the reality of Jesus' appearance in the future in power and glory. So he's saying one, the mount of transfiguration, guarantees the second. That's why he's trading on that theme against false apostles who will say there is no promise of a second coming. So he's going to talk about this first from the vantage point of being an eyewitness. Jesus' appearance in glory and power on the mountain was a foretaste of Jesus' return in power and glory in the future. These two ideas, these two events are tied together. Jesus' appearance on the mountain was not only God's honoring his son, but was giving a preview of Jesus' future glorious return and appearing. If you look at verse 16 again in chapter 1, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his, Jesus' majesty. We saw Jesus' majesty, his greatness, or his splendor. Now, Peter, in this letter, Peter's been writing from his own vantage point singularly, hasn't he? And what does he do when he talks about being a witness? He moves to the plural, doesn't he? And why is that important? So Peter's trading on a very common biblical theme that the way you determine what's true is by the veracity, the testimony of multiple witnesses, of two or three witnesses. And that comes straight out of the law. The way you determine the fact of an account is through two or three, at least two or three witnesses. So Peter suddenly switches to the plural and he, he doesn't say, I was a witness. He says, we were witnesses. So from Mark and the other synoptic gospels, we know three guys went up the mountain with Jesus and three guys heard and saw the same thing. So, so against the future claims that Jesus isn't going to appear, Peter says three of us witnessed the same event on the mountain of transfiguration. We all three saw Jesus in glory as he'll appear in the future. And we all three heard God the Father speak to say, this is the one that I said was coming, and this is the one that will return. So he says it's witnessed, and not by one person only. It's as if Peter would say, if you don't believe my word, you can talk to James, or you can talk to John. So Peter's bringing in this thought of credibility based on two or three witnesses. Verse 16 we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we really saw this. And verse 17, there was an utterance made by the majestic glory. He says, we ourselves heard this. So multiple witnesses saw Jesus' glory. 
they heard God the Father speak. Now, this is a common theme in the New Testament, just, not just a concept out of the Old, but a, a theme in the New Testament. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 through 8, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and there was a problem because they were saying, erroneously, there's no resurrection from the dead. And probably tied to the Greek concept of the body sort of inferior and, and reality is really all about these types, these spiritual realities in heaven. And so don't worry, there's no resurrection of the body. And so Peter, it's a, it's a long chapter for Peter to address the issue of resurrection. And he says, well, there's a problem because if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't rise. And that means you're still in your sins. And so Peter has to convince them there is really a resurrection of the body. And so one of the things he does is, in verses 4 through 8, he says, Jesus appeared alive. So after his death and burial, he says, Jesus appeared alive to Peter. Okay, so Pete, he doesn't bring that up in 2 Peter, but Pete saw Jesus alive. Okay, there's a witness. And then he says, and the other apostles. And you know, you read this in the, in the gospel account. And the other apostles. So there's at least two or three. And he says, oh, and by the way, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he says, and he appeared to James separately. And then he says, oh, and, and even to me, like someone born out of time, he appeared to me too. So Paul is doing what Peter did. Paul is saying you can count on the reality of the resurrection because multiple witnesses saw and heard. It's legitimate. And guys, you know, until just, what, 150 years or so ago, before we had the ability to record anything, phonographs, microphones, cameras, video, anything, you, you, you didn't have a touchstone to something in the past that wasn't based on someone's testimony. Everything was based on testimony. That's all you had. The written word or the oral tradition, that's how you validated things. So this was the case until modern history in which we call everything into account, no matter, into question, no matter how much validity it has. But that you see there, listen to all this. This is from 1 John 1, 1 through 3. Uh, and listen to the way John talks about the reality of Jesus because it's the same thought of witness. John starts by saying, that which was from the beginning. Now, he's saying that in his sentence is Jesus. But he doesn't say he. He treats Jesus objectively in this passage. Because against the Gnostics, there are some people that said, we don't really think Jesus was, was fully God and fully man. We don't think that works in our Greek worldview. So he probably wasn't really a real human. And so what does John do? Well, John makes him an object, not to minimize him, but to say, oh no, he was real. And how does he do it? He says that, objectively, that Jesus, which was from the beginning, and listen, he says, we've heard, we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon, we touched with our hands. He was made manifest, we have seen, he was made manifest. We have seen and we have heard. Eight times, John says here, we saw we heard, we touched. He was made manifest in space and time before us. There's no question about this. Multiple witnesses say the same thing. Jesus was the real deal. Jesus, God, really did take on flesh. He really was fully one of us. So what you see are the apostles, their defense for what they're saying in part is 
we're eyewitnesses, and it's not just me, and it's not just my partner in crime. It's a bunch of people are witnesses to the same thing. In space and time, this is what really, really happened. Eight witnesses, plural witnesses. So, what Peter, James, and John witnessed was God the Father, the majestic glory, this cloud came over the mountain, giving witness to His Son and His future appearing in kingdom by showing them Jesus' glory and then speaking of Him. And whether you go back to the Mark account or just catch part of what Peter said here, this is what uh, the Father said of the Son from the mountain. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved son. If you're a good Jew and you knew the Bible, I wonder what Old Testament biblical reference might come to mind. If you hear the majestic glory validate God the Son on earth, and he says, this is my beloved son. Here's a reference, Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Now, in the other parts of the New Testament, that verse is used to speak of Jesus' resurrection. But it's the Father's claim that Messiah, that the King that would come, is His divine Son. And the Father says that, quotes the Old Testament prophet David when he's referring to Jesus the Son on that mountain. He also says, with whom I am well pleased. I wonder if there's any scripture that they might have traded on that one. Isaiah 42, and you guys probably know, once you get into the second half of Isaiah, you get into these passages that are about the servant of Yahweh. And in some of them, we say it's the suffering servant, like you see in Isaiah 52 and 53. And other times, it's the glorious or it's the conquering servant. But they're all messianic, and they're all about Jesus. And in Isaiah 42, 1, God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, in whom my soul takes pleasure. So the Father is referring to the Old Testament prophet's voice about who the Messiah was and what he would be like. So the Father bore witness to Jesus at his baptism with almost exactly the same words as he does on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, it not only validates Jesus, but it validates the Old Testament references that Jesus is that promised Messiah. So on the Mount of Transfiguration, he bore witness to Christ again as a promise of his future return to glory to establish his kingdom on earth. Because remember, Jesus said in the synoptics that you would see the kingdom. And so we know the future kingdom is Jesus appearing in power and glory. Against future accusations, there's no return of Jesus. And this comes up big time in chapter 2. No future judgment to be avoided. Peter says, trust me, Jesus is returning. Three of us saw and heard God's promise to that effect back on the mountain of transfiguration. Here's the second reason Peter says that he should be believed and his testimony should be believed, and it has to do with the Old Testament scriptures. Peter turns from his own experience and he turns back to the Old Testament prophets and promises about Messiah's coming. Look again at verse 19. Pete says, We have the prophetic word more sure, which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Uh, different English translations will communicate verse 19 a little differently. 
And depending on which one you read, it sounds as if Peter is being played against the Old Testament or the Old Testament is being played against Peter. Like it sounds like one is more sure than the other, one is more credible than the other. And the thought really appears to be that they are mutually affirming. That Peter's experience and his eyewitness account affirms the, the veracity, the, the testimony of the Old Testament prophets about what Messiah would be and what he would be like, and that they're mutually affirming. It's not playing one against the other, but the truth of God's word seems even more evident. You know, if you pile up evidence and someone might say initially, uh, that sounds credible, I think I believe that, and then if you pile up testimony after testimony, after they're like, okay, I get it, I'm overwhelmed, it has to be true. That's the thought here. It's that they're mutually affirming. And if you look in verse 19, or yeah, verse 19, uh, part of what Peter said is, <clears throat> excuse me, God's word is like a lamp, and it's illuminating the darkness of our ignorance of the future. So that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Psalm 119, verse 105, your word, God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So Peter's picking up that theme out of Psalm 119. And you know, if you have a lamp, uh, not our modern flashlights, but a lamp, as you walk forward, that lamp shows you what's right in front of you. You can't see ahead of you in the dark without that lamp. Well, Peter is saying, just like Psalm 119 did, that God's Word is showing us what's coming in the future. We can look out into the future, not just space, but time, and we can say we know this is going to happen because God's Word is the lamp revealing that before it occurs. God's Word is the reliable guiding light we need to rely on, and, and he uses these lovely phrases, until the full light of day arrives in Jesus' personal appearing. Peter says the day dawns, and the morning star rises. I wonder where in the Old Testament prophets we might get imagery that sounds similar to that. Do you guys know? Does it ring a bell? So Malachi 4. In our English uh, arrangement of the Old Testament, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 4 is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And what does Malachi predict there? It's a messianic passage about the appearing, about the, we would say now, the return of Jesus in glory and power. Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. Malachi writes, Behold, the day is coming, so there's a future day coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. And one of the things, a common theme you'll see throughout the Old Testament and into the New, is that what we would call the second coming of Jesus, because he came first as the suffering servant, but he comes the second time in power and glory, the Messiah that the Jews expected all along in his incarnation but didn't get. That's what he's going to come. And when he comes, guys, he brings judgment. And judgment is almost always referred to in the imagery of fire, just as it is here in Malachi 4. And when you go to 2 Thessalonians, to me it's one of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible if you don't believe in Jesus 2 Thessalonians 1 says Jesus returns in the second coming in what? In flaming fire taking vengeance. It's the same thought out of Malachi 4. So there's judgment when Jesus comes in power and glory at the second coming. Malachi continues and says, 
The day that's coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, that is the arrogant and evildoers, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You know, like a tree or if I put a log in the fireplace, the fire consumes it entirely. That's the thought here. But for you who fear my name, so what's the second coming like for those who fear Messiah's name, God's name? Well, it's like the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Jesus coming, his future appearing, is like the sun rising above the horizon in the morning, bringing healing, not judgment, not fiery wrath, but healing. And Peter has said that we've got the prophetic scriptures until the day dawns, and the morning star rises. This imagery of Jesus in the second coming as the sun rising in this bright glory above the horizon, bringing judgment to some and healing to others. The other apostle, the apostle John, describes Jesus this way in Revelation 1.16. His face was like the sun shining in its fullness. His face is like the sun shining in the fullness Revelation 22:16 Jesus says, "I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star." So there's this whole thought of Peter's witness what he saw in the Mount of Transfiguration, it comports it goes right along with the Old Testament prophets who described what Jesus appearing would be at his second coming. They're one and the same. The apostles and the prophets, the Old Testament and the New are all affirming the same thing about the person and the work of Jesus Christ as God's chosen Messiah. Healing for the faithful, judgment for those who've rejected him. Peter qualifies the origin and authority of the Old Testament, verses 20 and 21. Uh, no prophecy of Scripture is one's own interpretation. Uh, prophecy is not an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Uh, this is the same thought out of 2 Peter 3. All scriptures breathed out by God. You know, the whole doctrine, the whole concept of inspiration. Uh, in, in Paul's description, it's a God breathed out his word. And we might say, or it's like if I take up a pen and I write with that pen. Well, the pen was my instrument, but I'm the one writing with the Holy Spirit was directing these folks. So Peter and Paul are both saying, the testimony of the Scripture in the Old Testament that they refer to, it's not something that a man made up and that a man controls. It's divinely inspired. So it's the Holy Spirit telling us beforehand what was going to come. So Peter's arguing, of course, not just for his own eyewitness testimony, but for the veracity, the credibility of the Old Testament prophets. Pete says what's happening, what's going to come, isn't based on a myth. It's no myth, it's no fairy tale. You know, sometimes if you think somebody's hard-headed and you talk about Jesus and the second coming and the return, they're like, you know, come on. Peter says, oh no, you know, it's solemn reality. It's going to happen. It's all but done already. Now, this is a big deal in the Old Testament. So we're saying, Peter says Jesus is really coming. The Old Testament, he cites Malachi, hasn't happened. You talk about the transformation on the mountain, the precursor of his coming, and lots and lots of other texts, of course, along the same line. And this goes back to another Old Testament concept. This is especially in Isaiah. It comes out repeatedly in Isaiah. 
But you know, Israel, they were just consumed with this temptation towards idol worship. And so, you know, it was always this thing, Yahweh's always addressing his covenant people about idolatry. And one of the things God says to Israel is this. He says, this is how you know who's the real God and who isn't. And he says, the real God can tell you the future before it happens. And he can tell you accurately. The real God, who's timeless, he knows the end from the beginning. So the real God can tell you what's going to happen. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, some of the stories of the kings, the false prophets, they'd come up and they'd say, such and such is going to happen. Now, guys, sometimes they could get it right. But when they got it wrong, you knew they don't speak for God. And this is the thing about God's prophets, they never got it wrong. So God says, the God who tells you the future before it happens, he's God. Listen to these words out of Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. There he says, I'm God. There's no other. I'm God. There's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God who says, I know the end from the beginning, and I've written it by my spirit in the Old Testament prophets, Peter says, that's real testimony. That's a real witness. Those are the guys you need to be paying attention to. So just as God spoke beforehand in the Old Testament regarding events that have already occurred, certainly in Jesus' incarnation, he's also spoken of Messiah's return as well. And Peter says you can count on it. Uh, for the few minutes I have left, guys, I want to turn to application and consider the implications for us. So, just like Paul did, Peter is saying, I'm credible and you should listen to me. And you should listen to me because there's going to be competition for what I've told you. And I've promised you that Jesus is returning again in power and glory, in judgment and healing. And people are going to come along and they're going to say, that's a myth, that's a fairy tale, don't believe it. So he's prepping them for competing theology and doctrine and voices that's the thought and so as we wind down this morning this is what I want to ask again who is influencing your thinking and who is influencing what you give credibility to Th these are challenging times uh, my good brother here in the church Stephen talks about spiritual warfare this way he says the battle is for mind space for mind space. So if we ask the question, who's controlling the thoughts in my mind? What influence am I under such that my view of life is being affected by the testimony of, of who? Of what? And again, there's no, no uh, culture in the history of the world that's more bombarded than ours is with claims and counterclaims. So who is shaping our hopes, our dreams, our expectations? What sources of information do I pay attention to? Do I take my cues from? Do I take my cues from QAnon? Do I take my cues from social media? And guys, a ton of us do. By my peers. Um, my daughter has a guy in his, and uh, there's a friend in their church 
who talks about uh, children. I might get this a little wrong. He said, my fools are being influenced by your fools. That's social media. My fools are being influenced by your fools and vice versa. Now, social media is just a platform, right? I have nothing against technology. It's, it's how it's used. And social media is, in, in many, many levels, it's simply bankrupt of godliness. But boy, is it influential. Am I taking my cues from social media? How about from the evening news? I have a friend, I have a relative, and he's had conversations with someone he holds near and dear. And the one he holds near and dear says, just believe them. I believe whatever they say. And he's like, well, but what about this? It's like, don't, don't confuse me. I've chosen my source. I'm sticking with my choice. Don't confuse me with facts or counterclaims. The Wall Street Journal. Guys, I used to love the Wall Street Journal. And I don't anymore. I'm canceling my subscription. They still have some great editorial and opinion pieces, uniquely, I would say. My goodness, are they pushing the homosexual alternative lifestyle at every chance they get. You know, how much am I influenced by what the Wall Street Journal is selling? Who, again, the question is, who are we giving credibility to? Who's occupying our mind space? Who's occupying our mind space? Where do the words of the apostles fit in my mindscape? Because Peter, Peter's emphasis is the apostles and the prophets. And guys, that's shorthand for the Old Testament and the New Testament. So as I'm thinking about the lens or the filter or the perspective I bring to all the things that come into my mind that I've got to make a judgment about or have to interact with on some level, where do the apostles and the prophets, where do they come into play? Because that's the testimony Peter says you can believe, you can hold on to. And again, I'm not opposed to doing things like checking the news. I check the news. I, check, I stay current. There's not a problem with that. But whose, whose testimony do I find credible? I hope you have a study sheet. I'm, I'll send you home with a short exercise. I hope you'll at least start it this morning. You can finish it later. Second uh, page of that study sheet on the lower half. It's just a series of questions. And really the thought is this. Uh, who's, who's influencing my thinking? So for, I'll just give you an example. The first one, the person who's had the greatest influence on my life is who? By name. Who is that? Who is that person who I just look back on my life, short or long, and I say, man, that person had the greatest impact of anyone in my life. And so I rate that on 1 to 10. Well, their impact was so big on me, at 1 out of 10, I'd give it an 8. It was huge impact. Then the next question is, what was that person's level of spiritual maturity or the degree to which their opinions were biblically informed? So this person had a great impact on my life, let's say, but they weren't a Christian, they didn't believe the Bible, and so the witness they have in my life, I need to be careful of in some significant ways because this wasn't biblically formed. They, weren't, they, they didn't affirm the apostles and the prophets. And I'll briefly say this too. If you read C.S. Lewis's story, his life story, you know that he was in day school for a while or uh, anyway, he was in prep school in England, and he complained. Dad takes him out and gives him this tutor, uh, Kirkpatrick. And all the students called him the Great Knock. And, and as soon as Lewis starts to interact with this guy, now this guy had been a Presbyterian, but at this point in his life, 
He's a professing atheist. And as soon as Lewis starts interacting with him, he realizes, man, i got to be careful what I say around this guy because he requires absolute logic. He requires me to think critically, to think thoughtfully. He doesn't let me get away with saying things that make no sense. He requires me to think logically. I could go to school and have a great teacher who's not a Christian, not biblically informed, and I could still absolutely derive benefit from their impact on my life. You can read the Greeks, the poets, the historians. You can get benefit. But you've got to be careful by what lens are you viewing the Greek poets or the historians or the Kirkpatrick's view of life writ large. Not just logic itself, but life writ large. So I'd encourage that for you to look over with this thought again, who's affecting my thoughts? What's forming my opinions about life as it is, about my expectation for what's to come? Because remember, Peter said in 1 Peter 1.13 that Christians were meant to set our hope entirely on Jesus appearing. Now, if I find I'm so caught up in life that Jesus appearing has no no impact on me, I'm not paying attention to the apostles and the prophets. I'm paying attention to something or someone else. Set your hope completely on Jesus appearing. Is that, is that what's motivating my mindset as I look forward? Let me wind down with this. By the way, this is shorthand, isn't it, for read your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. Think your Bible. Pray your Bible. If we want to know God and Christ, we study the Scripture. John 5, 39 they bear witness of me to understand the purposes of God, to glorify Jesus the Son in the days before us, study Scripture. Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To have our ear to the ground concerning future things, study Scripture. Amos 3.7, the Lord God does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. To keep ourselves from the latest conspiracy theory and instead focus with hard-headed thinking on God's commitment to align everything on earth and in heaven to his sovereign plan and will to glorify his son. Read our Bibles, Philippians 2.10. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, maybe especially in these days, to maintain peace in the midst of unrest, take God's word to heart. John 16, 33, and it could be multiple others. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Who's got our mind space? Who's affecting what I think? Who's affecting the way I look to the future with fear and anxiety or with confidence and hope? Who's controlling our little gray cells? Let's be hard-hearted as we think about that. Uh, worship team can come on up, and if you guys would rise, let's read together from 1 Peter 1. Verses 10 through 13. Read with me. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated. <coughs> It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully 